Good day. Those of my friends on YouTube and Spotify can now see the cartoon I'm about to discuss, as well as its caption. However, for the benefit of the rest of my audience, I must needs describe it. We see a man and a woman standing in front of a restaurant called Dino's. The man is gesturing towards the woman as he says, What do I want to do? I want to do what you want to do, and then resent you for being controlling. One could write a psychology PhD dissertation on the basis of this one cartoon. Is the man being passive-aggressive? Characteristics of passive-aggressive behavior include avoiding direct or clear communication, evading problems, fear of intimacy or competition, making excuses, blaming others, obstructionism, playing the victim, feigning compliance with requests, sarcasm, and hiding anger. Or is the man finally verbalizing what for him has been a frustrating pattern in his relationship, whatever that relationship might be, with the woman? Perhaps he even likes resenting her for being controlling. It can be gratifying when events in life are predictable, even if that entails a loss of freedom. The question even arises as to whether being in a marriage or in a relationship entails giving your own desires a back seat until you no longer have any desires of your own. Or am I reading too much into this cartoon? So much for my Ph.D. dissertation. Have you ever had a conversation with someone who says, Jim is so controlling? We always end up doing what he wants to do. Controlling Jim could be a character in a marriage, a relationship, a parent or sibling, or in a work context. Have you ever known two people who accuse each other of being controlling? You talk to Karen and she says, Patty is so controlling. Then you talk to Patty and she says, Karen is so controlling. Control can also be about emotions. Sometimes controlling people, and here we are using a temporary broad general definition of what controlling people are, do not wish you to express grief or sadness or anger or frustration. They want to control your mood, or at least the expression of your mood. Then there are the fixers. The fixer controller may accuse a friend or lover of being OCD, of having obsessive compulsive behavior syndrome, and therefore decides unilaterally that the friend or lover needs to be fixed and by them. Sure, some individuals can use this type of useful advice. I once knew a very intelligent man who was a collector, one might say an obsessive collector. In his case, it was largely LPs, you know, vinyl, but also books. The specific issue in the physical realm was that his collection weighed so much that it was literally causing his floor to sag. The owner of the building where he rented an apartment demanded that something be done. Then he got married to a friend of mine who immediately took it upon herself to get rid of much of his collection. A mutual friend of both of them and of myself, said this was wrong, that Tom's collection was not only something that gave him pleasure and, if you will, 
ego satisfaction, it was also of considerable cultural and historical value. Then there are those who collect people, and specifically lovers. The important French filmmaker Eric Romer made a film on the subject called La Collectionneuse. It's a rather different pattern from simply playing the field for pleasure or fun, or because there's nothing else to do, or until the collector finds someone that he or she wants to have a long-term relationship with. For certain individuals, it is perfectly natural and rewarding to have a, if you will, gallery of lovers, which they can visit in their minds and also describe to others. Then they will say to you, I once dated a Polish stamp collector who took me to a convention in Australia. Things along those lines. Such collectors of lovers never talk about the depth of these dating relationships, which can last for years, or even about the emotional element. However, they generally appear quite satisfied with their choices in life. It's a bit like people who travel for the sake of traveling. People who collect places, you might say. And perhaps, we are only speculating here, it does something for their ego strength, for their feeling that they are able to hook a number of people into these dating relationships, which are, of course, sexual. The designation dating currently occupies a liminal position between going out with and in a relationship with. An issue with two people who are dating is that one party may view this as an exclusive situation, while the other does not. Say the man sees this as non-exclusive and the woman sees it as exclusive. What is she supposed to do? Insist that the man formalize the situation in some way? But what way? And if she insists that the man not cheat in this context, is she being controlling? But back to collectors of other things. I have a former girlfriend from back in the day when I was interested in things like having girlfriends who stores issues of Variety, the entertainment industry magazine, in a shed in my yard. These magazines are from the 1990s and earlier. Their contents are now readily accessible online. And yet, there they are, in my shed, in my backyard. Florence is a hoarder. Another ex-girlfriend of mine was also a hoarder. My mother, to a lesser extent, was a hoarder. Perhaps this might be a topic for a future episode. Florence has another quirk, at least in the context of the second decade of the 21st century. She refuses to use a cell phone. She has a landline where she lives, but only uses it for outgoing calls. A mutual friend told me the other day that she wanted to do an intervention to convince Florence, by every means possible, to go mobile. Then I was thinking about my study of controlling people for this episode. I suggested to our mutual friend that Florence refused to get a cell phone because she wanted to control when people could get in touch with her. By not being available except on her own initiative, she was and is controlling her social space. But back once again to our cartoon. As we shall say several times during this episode, such person-person dyads are made up of two individuals with different, one might say dysfunctionally complementary, psychologies. But wait a minute. 
What is control anyway? Why is it important? A group of professors of psychology from Rutgers and Columbia Universities wrote a groundbreaking article entitled Born to Choose the Origins and Value of the Need for Control. This study begins with a key statement. Belief in one's ability to exert control over the environment and to produce desired results is essential for an individual's well-being. It has been repeatedly argued that the perception of control is not only desirable, but is a likely psychological and biological necessity. Curiously, they devote most of this article to humans' need to control their environment. In this respect, they state that, quote, the need for control is a biological imperative for survival, and a cortical striatal network is implicated as the neural substrate of this adaptive behavior. They refer to Canadian psychologist Albert Bandura's notion of self-efficacy, which refers to an individual's perceived ability to achieve desired results. To sum up in my own words, having choices makes people happy, and being able to get what they choose gives them a psychologically beneficial feeling of control. On the other hand, the authors tell us that the removal of choice, in and of itself, can be very stressful. When one's choices are controlled to the extent that they are severely limited or non-existent, the individual can experience, quote, learned helplessness, unquote. Furthermore, Cognitive dissonance arises when one's choices, or actions more generally, conflict with one's prior attitudes about choice options. This dissonant state is unpleasant and motivates a change in attitudes about what was chosen and or not chosen, or done or not done more generally, which serves to both justify the choice and reduce dissonances. So what is being controlled can be absolutely fundamental to who you are. These authors use the word attitudes, but one could quite as well substitute the word values. On the other hand, and it is a critical on the other hand, the authors tell us, the argument for an inherent need for control is strengthened by the findings of physiological and behavioral detriments when personal control over an individual is absent. In animals and humans, the perception of control over a stressor, that is to say, over a stressful element, has been shown to inhibit autonomic arousal and stress hormone release. Behavioral control has been implicated in decreasing arousal during anticipation of aversive photographs and in increasing tolerance to pain and aversive noise. What these articles are telling us in their academic way is that we like to perceive that the situation is under control even if it is someone else who is doing the controlling. And if an individual is subject to behavioral control, and let's think in terms of a highly controlling partner in a marriage, the controlled person has increased tolerance to pain. Of course, the strategy is employed all the time in military contexts if an infantry soldier is made to feel that his every action and thought is controlled by his commanding officer, then on the battlefield he will feel less pain, 
and will have decreased arousal, let's call a spade a spade, decreased fear, as the enemy approaches. Now let's think again about a relationship or a marriage where the routine pattern between members of the couple is that one of the two experiences all of the psychological rewards of being in control, including the feeling of self-efficacy. And the other feels none of those rewards, or only on rare occasions. Your host is going to stick his neck out and propose that we live at a time and in a society where individuals' sense of control, control of their environment, control of their lives, even control of their thoughts, is rapidly decreasing. People, usually men but occasionally also women, have a strong psychological need to assert control in some context, and often the only one available is in their relationships or marriages. I am not, repeat not, suggesting that this excuses psychological or physical abuse within a relationship. Quite the contrary. What I am suggesting is that control issues should be addressed directly in therapy and the popular media more than they are at present. In fact, that is one of the purposes of this episode. And bear in mind that individuals like to feel, it is healthy for them to feel, that things are under control. Control can feel preferable to chaos. In our opinion, the application of chaos theory to psychology is in its infancy, not even that far along. Edward Lorenz defined chaos as, quote, when the present determines the future, but the approximate present does not approximately determine the future. Control has a lot to do with our ability to measure things situations, moods, behaviors, accurately. But things such as interpersonal situations, moods, and someone's behavior cannot be measured accurately, or at all. So what does determine the future? Certainly not the approximate present, which we cannot measure. Thus, we jump to conclusions about how things are, and about what will happen in the next five minutes, or weeks or months, or years, because this gives us the illusion of control. And there is always a controlling person around to help us to jump to such conclusions. Controlling people love to take the guesswork out of life. Here is a road map to assist you, and frankly myself also, in navigating this episode. I am going to begin with some theory, interspersed with occasional real-life examples, and then move on to what online advice sites and blogs have to tell us. Buckle your seatbelts and hope your airbags are working properly. One of our guides in this section will be an article entitled Socio-Psychological Analysis of Controlling Personality, published in 2013 in Presidia, Social and Behavioral Sciences. The author is Professor Tatanya A. Shikurko, Southern Federal University, Russia. In social psychology at this moment, there is a certain tradition of studying the different personality types. 
where the identification criterion is the socio-psychological characteristics, system of values, relationships with others, level of intensity slash satisfaction slash dissatisfaction of the socio-psychological needs. It is interesting to note that Professor Struko is basing her analysis on a much more social-psychological approach than on the traditional Big Five personality trait model. Namely, openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. So before we move on, let's take a look at one of these Big Five personality traits, namely agreeableness. As far as agreeableness is concerned, some researchers believe that agreeableness is best linked theoretically to processes such as social conformity and social desirability concerns. One of the underlying issues of this episode is that it takes two to tango. For every controlling person, or knight in shining armor person, or fixer person, or savior, there is another person, or several people, who agree to be controlled, or fixed, or saved, at least for a while. Thus the question arises as to whether the control E, the person being controlled, is what we will refer to in a moment as a conforming personality. Many fixers, and again, more on that later, want to help the individuals whom they seek to fix to be normal by their definition, as if jettisoning their quirks or eccentricities will make them happy, as if making them conform, turning them into conformists even, will make them happy. But back to socio-psychological personality characteristics. We will stop to review some of these as we advance through the list. The authoritarian personality is a concept first introduced by the German psychologist, philosopher, and composer Theodor Wiesengrund Adorno in 1950. Adorno was primarily concerned with the authoritarian personality as it related to the rise of fascism in Europe between 1920 and 1940, and even today it is often discussed in terms of politics. In 2021, a right-wing authoritarian scale was developed. Regardless of what you may think about the definition of right-wing in the second decade of the 21st century, this scale showed that the United States was the most authoritarian-leaning country in the world, with 26% being high on the right-wing authoritarian scale and 13% being low. This compares with only 7% of Germans being right-wing authoritarian, 11% of French, and 13% of Italians. Some research has shown that so-called right-wing authoritarians score low on the Big Five personality trait called openness to experience. They desire, even need, to have authority themselves but don't want to try anything new, even a new flavor of ice cream especially if it is suggested by someone else. Why? Because to do so would mean relinquishing some of their authority. Broadly speaking, right-wing authoritarian people value obedience and respect for authority over independence and being considerate. However, the question, and it is indeed a fascinating question, 
remains as to whether these right-wing authoritarian individuals seek to be controlling with their work associates, with their friends, and with their romantic or relationship partners, since that is the major theme of this episode rather than politics. And also, at a deep level, what makes someone authoritarian and, by extension, controlling in the first place? It has been suggested that a lack of self-acceptance can make a person authoritarian. As of today, this theory has not yet been extensively researched, but it certainly bears further study. In my opinion, it makes some sense. A person who feels the need to assert authority or control over other people may do so because they do not accept themselves as they are. Another way of looking at this is to suggest that if a person feels a need to control others, either one individual or many, it is because they feel that they are unable to control themselves, to control their own desires and impulses, or to make decisions for themselves. A person who is a fixer, someone who from the outside makes a plan for your life and insists that you follow their instructions, is frequently someone who has been unable to make a plan for their own life. Or, and I have certainly seen this happen, a person who is stuck. I am trapped in my life, in my relationship, in my job, in my home, but I am going to make a plan for you. This relieves tension and anxiety for the fixer. As long as Janice is working on Brad, or Christy, they don't have to worry about themselves. They still do, of course, but by imposing control on Brad or Christy, they repress their own sense of stuckness. However, psychoanalytic theory is very clear on this point. Anything Janice represses will return in another form. In this case, it returns as controlling behavior. Now let us turn to a fascinating study and research review by Bill E. Peterson and Eileen Zerbringen of the University of California at Santa Cruz entitled Gender, Sexuality, and the Authoritarian Personality. This was published in the Journal of Personality. They reported several studies which showed that women and men higher in authoritarianism also reported beliefs consistent with an adversarial model of sexual interactions. In romantic or sexual situations, the opposite sex is considered almost as an enemy, one with his or her own strategies, goals, and tactics, one who should not be trusted. These authors showed that women and men high in authoritarianism live in rigidly gendered worlds, where male and female roles are narrowly defined, attractiveness is based on traditional conceptions of masculinity and femininity, and conventional sexual mores are prescribed. Considering a relationship or a marriage between an authoritarian man and an authoritarian woman, and we have all observed at least one of these, the context is always one in which the man exerts controlling behavior over the woman in many areas of her life from her occupation, if she's permitted to have one, to her role as a mother, if she is permitted to become one, to her appearance. Eric Maslow included sadomasochism as a typical trait of the authoritarian personality, 
And in fact, psychologist Eric Fromm, a leading writer on the authoritarian personality, chose the term authoritarian character rather than sadomasochistic character to disassociate it from personality and neurosis. But perhaps Maslow was being too generous to authoritarians. Why not associate the authoritarian character with perversity and neurosis? Why not say that authoritarians, and I'm broadening this term here to include a broad range of controlling people, are in fact sadomasochists? The controlling, authoritarian personality is one which is very likely to desire to assert control in the bedroom. However, just as often, one observes an individual who is very controlling in other aspects of his life wish to be submissive in the bedroom, as if compensating for his desire for control in everything else. We shall discuss a bit later how the controlling personality type is not in and of itself classified as a personality disorder, while many personality disorders are characterized by controlling tendencies. However, for the moment, just for fun, but not really, let's take a moment to look at a British article by Samantha Evans entitled, Losing Control Means Great Sex! Exclamation point. And it is from this article that we shall now quote extensively. Many women believe that they are control freaks because they have definite ideas about how their lives should go. They have high expectations of themselves and want to seem like they have it all. Does this sound familiar? This feeling can spill over into the bedroom. The problem in the bedroom is not that we are trying to control our partner, but that we are trying to stay in control of ourselves. Again, this of course is being written from the female perspective. Being intimate with our partner means losing control over our inhibitions, which some women find hard to do. Being in control, you are standing on guard, being aware of your surroundings, and not being taken by surprise. But sex doesn't work that way. If both of you feel that you need to be in control of the situation, then you will not move together as one when it comes to sex. If you trust your partner you will feel more comfortable at being improper. What a very British word, improper. Okay, but if the woman gives up control, it is not always to her own libido and desires. In fact, it is more often than not to her male lovers. Then the author goes on to say, Be even naughtier and wear a remote control toy for couples' play such as We Vibe 4 Plus when you go out. Let your partner take control of the remote, leaving you in a constant state of sexual arousal, wondering when they will press the play button. What is We Vibe 4? Well, it costs 119.99 pounds sterling and is tragedy to end all tragedies. Currently sold out. Promise me not to get too excited while I read the description. The number one couple's vibrator in the world can now be controlled with an app as well as a remote. With a WeVibe 4 Plus, couples can connect in new, exciting ways, whether they're in the same room or on a different continent. Let the games begin. 
Use the we vibe for together during sex or when you're apart. She gets extra stimulation of her clitoris and G-spot, and together you both share the vibe. With two separate motors, one in each pleasure point, We Vibe 4 Plus is designed to be worn by women either during intercourse or as part of couples' play. As we mentioned before, when your continents, galaxies, even universes apart. The new app feature allows you to use the We Vibe 4 Plus even when you are apart. You and your partner can now connect with each other wherever you are. Simply create a private, secure connection with the We Connect app on both of your smartphones, available for both Android phones and iPhones. Connect your WeVibe 4 Plus to your smartphone via Bluetooth and put your partner in control of your pleasure. Don't have a smartphone? No problem! You can still use the WeVibe 4 Plus with a provided remote control from up to 12 meters away. The WeVibe 4 Plus is made with medical-grade silicone and is curved to snugly fit the female body. The G-Spot stimulator rests in place behind the pubic bone, preventing slipping when in use. The WeVibe 4 Plus has six stimulation modes, including the new Echo Vibe which provides alternate vibrations to each motor. What's more, the WeConnect app enables you to create custom playlists and control each motor separately using simple sliders. This truly is a gadget for both women and men to enjoy, whether alone or together. I'm doing my best, not really, to visualize a relationship in which I and my girlfriend would use this device. I believe that I have a good imagination, however this stretches things a bit. And now you are going to tell me that everyone you know owns one of these already and has the app on their phones. Well, the purpose of this podcast is for you, my audience, to educate me. I'm so in the dark about so many things. Take a deep sigh as we return to Professor Tatanya A. Shriko of the Southern Federal University of Russia. Next in her socio-psychological personality lists is the conforming personality, which we have already mentioned. Dr. Solomon Ash wanted to know what percentage of people stick with their own sensory data, for example, as to which of two lines is longer, and what percentage will go along with a group even though the group is clearly wrong. Only about 23% of experimental subjects resist social pressure, 5% completely succumb, and the rest, the vast majority, conform to the majority's manifestly incorrect opinion at least some of the time. This brings us back in a certain way to the psychological trait of agreeableness. We all want to be nice and get along. And this can give controlling and authoritarian, even sadomasochistic, individuals a field day. Next is the manipulative personality, per se, concerning which there has been surprisingly little research. Early papers on manipulation by psychiatrists attempted to understand manipulative behavior as a largely unconsciously motivated attempt to bolster fragile self-esteem, discharge aggressive or sadistic drives, or seek a sensation of grandiose mastery or exhilaration through wielding power over others. While this description is today considered to be outmoded, 
it does what more recent analysis does not. Namely, it discusses the personality structure of the manipulator rather than focusing on the manipulated party. And honestly, in viewing all types of manipulating and controlling person, might this outmoded approach in fact be the case, specifically the first item mentioned? Is the manipulator, the controller, the fixer, and the knight in shining armor behaving in the way that he or she does in order to bolster their fragile self-esteem? The next time you encounter such a person, ask yourself that question. One of the few contemporary psychologists who has delved deeply into this area, that is the area of manipulation, is Yevgeny L. Dotschenko of the University of Tumen. An interesting point he makes is about the manipulative person's exploitation of the identity of the addressee, his term for the person being manipulated. He writes, The deep essence of manipulative intent is the desire to shift the responsibility for the actions to the addressee, while the manipulator gets the win. However, responsibility cannot simply be transferred it must be accepted as a result of free choice. The feeling, illusion of freedom of choice, arises as a result of a combination of three elements necessary for this. The presence of a struggle of motives, the moment of choice, essentially the moment in which the addressee's doubts are cast away, and finally the addressee's lack of awareness of outside interference. The first element, the illusion of freedom of choice, is created by the manipulator since the actualized motive by definition is contrary to the interests or intentions of the addressee. What it all comes down to is the manipulated persons getting you to do things that are, as Professor Dolchenko writes, specifically contrary to your interests. In this way, the manipulator is rather different from the controller. If the controlling person succeeds in getting you to see a Spider-Man movie rather than an Ingmar Bergman movie, or to eat Thai rather than Italian, the controller is not deliberately trying to get you to do something they know is not good for you. Although personally, my choice would be Bergman plus gnocchi any day of the week. On the other hand, the manipulator is trying to get you to do things that are contrary to your intentions, which invites the question of whether your intentions are always right. Are manipulators and controlling people not in fact great teachers? No and yes, rather than yes and no. My much admired friend has discussed intention versus attention, on her podcast, Discover Joyous Love, which I highly recommend. In tune with Professor Dotschenko, in their article, The Pragmatic Nature of Manipulation, Professor D. Farid H. H. Al-Hindawi, Department of English, Faculty of Languages, Kufa University, Iraq, and Salwa Ibrahim Kamil, argue that, quote, manipulation is more pragmatic than psychological in nature. Besides, it is characterized by pragmatic features other than the cognitive ones. They further state, 
Manipulation is a communicative, pragmatic process in which the speaker, manipulator, maliciously and covertly intends to influence the beliefs, desires, emotions, or behaviors of the hearer, target, usually against his best interest, by using certain manipulative, pragmatic strategies. To achieve his influential goals, the manipulator resorts to fallacious arguments, breaches the maxims of cooperation, uses certain pragmatic manipulative speech acts, conveys irrelevant information, uses certain deictic expressions, acts impolitely, and or strategically maneuvers his target. Taking a step back, prominent philosopher of language J. L. Austin, as well as others of his ilk, have asserted that all speech acts contain an element of manipulation. And these dudes get paid the big bucks, well, sometimes, for saying stuff like that. However that may be, and to state the obvious, something for which I have a special talent, now more than ever we are surrounded by manipulative speech. As Professor Dolchenko points out, the media creates the myth of individualism and personal choice. Let me repeat that, just because it's fun to say. The media creates the myth of individualism and personal choice. In an article by Michael Kligman, M.D., and Charles M. Culver, M.D., published in the Journal of Medicine and Philosophy, they referred to the desired outcome of the manipulative person A as O and the person being manipulated as B. Often A's attempt to manipulate B is couched in terms which appeal to what A believes to be a weakness or imperfection of B's which might provide leverage or entrance into the motivational system of B. As these authors state bluntly, the character flaws potentially vulnerable to manipulative cultivation may be infinite. One can play on others' insecurity, gullibility, or fear, pander to their vanity, morbid curiosity, or superstitiousness, or exploit their sentimentality, misplaced anger, or wishful thinking. To this, I would add their sexual self-doubt and lack of ego strength as far as sex is concerned. Furthermore, the manipulator sets up a power imbalance at the outset of the interaction. He intends to maintain control over the interaction and its ultimate outcome, and does not regard the object of manipulation as an equal negotiating partner. Reaching the Ultima Thule of Professor Tatiana A. Shruko's roadmap, we find the neurotic personality, which immediately brings to mind psychologist Karen Horney. Writing in 1977, Ralph Hyatt, Department of Psychology, St. Joseph's College, Philadelphia, suggested that, quote, the passive female often finds neurotic comfort with a controlling neurotic male. A view I rather doubt that any psychologist would express today. And yet, more recently, René Müller has reminded us that Horney posited the resigned person who finds a resignation solution to the problems of basic anxiety, and that this resignation solution often leads to pathology. The resigned person displays instability of self-image, 
social relationships, and moods. Thus, once again, we see a dysfunctional dyad of the controller, in this case the neurotic controller, and a controlee who is also neurotic. Karen Horney believed that neurotics have three categories of needs. The need for compliance. This category is seen as a process of joining, submitting, or self-effacement. In this category, we find what Dotschenko referred to as the addressee, and what Professor Alhindawi called the hearer, or the target. The need for expansion slash aggression. Neurotics of this ilk only care about their wants and needs. They would do whatever they can to satisfy their needs and wouldn't desist from hurting anyone in the obtainment of them. The need for detachment slash withdrawal. The stringent needs for perfection comprise another part of this category of neurotics. They suppress or deny any feelings toward others, particularly love and hate. However, to the extent that these types of neurotics do not detach and withdraw, they impose their needs of perfection onto their resigned cohorts. The neurotic perfectionist demands that you be perfect, per his or her definition. Thus far, we've been talking about situations comprising adults. Now let's ask, how does a controlling parent affect his or her children? Or to put it another way, how does controlling fit into a discussion of parenting styles? A group of psychologists from Clark University, led by Professor Wendy Grolnick, wrote an article entitled, Evaluative Pressures in Mothers, Effects of Situation, Maternal and Child Characteristics on Autonomy Supportive versus Controlling Behavior, which was published in the journal Developmental Psychology. They begin by summarizing what they called self-determination theory, which we shall now quote. Controlling parenting refers to parent behavior involving pressure, solving problems for children, and taking a parental rather than a child perspective. These behaviors can be contrasted with the other end of the continuum, autonomy supportive, in which parents take children's perspectives, allow them to solve problems on their own, and encourage initiation. Within this category, controlling behaviors undermine a sense of autonomy in children or the experience that their behavior is self-determined. They point out that in studies done in both Europe and the United States, more autonomy-supportive, which is to say less controlling, parenting has been associated with higher perceived competence and self-regulation in children, higher grades, and lower levels of symptomatology, a fancy word for exhibition of neuroses and other dysfunctional psychological traits among the children's studies. They tell us that hostile control has been associated with children's conduct problems and depression. They note that children's performance is an outcome on which parents are likely to hinge their self-worth given their enormous investment in their children. From an evolutionary viewpoint, Parents are deeply invested in their children's thriving and reproducing and put high levels of resources and sacrifice into these goals. Furthermore, mothers who perceive their children as being less competent are more likely to be controlling with them. 
May I add that this becomes a vicious circle. The mother feels that the child is less competent, that is, in her own mind, and then she becomes more controlling, the child becomes less competent, etc. Michelle C. Bruton Brooks, MS, licensed marriage and family therapist, to whom we shall refer again later, tells us that overparenting or controlling behavior in parents can increase anxiety in young adults and restrict the development of independent adulthood. According to her, some damaging catchphrases controlling parents might use include, What were you thinking? Why did you do that? After all I've done for you. And a good child would never treat a parent like you're treating me. An acquaintance of mine who was the subject of our episode entitled Love and Pain says that his mother told him, You were the wanted child, and that this continued until he was middle-aged. My acquaintance finally figured out the implication of this statement. Other children were accidents. You were the only child, or one of the few children, who was genuinely intentional, explicitly desired. So you are obligated to do and be exactly as we wish you to do and be. Now let us take a step back and examine what happens when a controlling and or manipulative and or authoritarian and or fixer individual becomes a parent. Is it safe to say that these types will inflict long-term damage on their children, not only in terms of their K through 12 grades? This was not specifically the question asked by Grolnick at all for purposes of their research, but in our opinion, it is certainly a valid one. Before we transition from the more academic or scholarly phase of our discussion, I would like to take a glance at a fascinating paper entitled Controlling Behaviors in Couple Relationships in the Digital Age, Acceptability of Gender Violence, Sexism, and myths about romantic love. This study was written by three researchers from the University of Granada, Spain. They tell us that control behaviors are the most frequent form of online violence. Examples of such behavior include constantly checking up on the whereabouts of one's partner and confirming who she is with, checking her mobile phone, forcing the partner to stop chatting with someone, forcing her to delete photos of her social network friends, or asking for the password to access her personal accounts on social networks. The situation is serious. One of the first studies about gender violence and social perception found that abusive online control through a mobile phone is the most exercised form of control by young people. However, it is not perceived as gender violence. An interesting thing about this study was that, quote, young women considered controlling behaviors to occur frequently amongst young couples, 84.8%. However, they declared that they had never or hardly ever suffered from these behaviors in their relationship, 82.9%. Make of that what you will. Let's again take our usual step back and ask what control in the digital age means. In my parents' era, if a man was interested in a woman, let's say they had gone out on dates once or twice without having sex, yet, he might want to know what she had been doing with her life in the interim. 
but that would take the initiation of a phone call by either her or him, and the information conveyed in such a call was very likely to be incomplete. If in such a phone call a man had asked, Have you seen that character Pete from the pet store again? He would have sounded paranoid, controlling, and the woman he was interested in would very likely have hung up on him. Unless she had been one of those women who like possessive men. And yes, such women exist. It gives them a feeling of power and control. As they tease the infatuated man with half-truths, and falsehoods. Then came the 1990s and email. It took a while before emails became as casual a means of communication as a phone call. Who did you go out with last weekend was something that might be awkward to slip into an email. After that, the 21st century arrived and the dam burst. Leaving WhatsApp to the side, let's concentrate on Facebook and Instagram and maybe a little bit on Twitter, although fewer people share their lives on Twitter than they do on Facebook. Although, there seem to be more links to nude women than previously. I did, I'm not looking for them, I just happen to have seen them. Now, if I am interested in a woman, and I do not mean in a diabolical way, just that I like her and might want to get to know her better and eventually love her with my entire heart and soul unto all eternity, I can check up on her as often as I like. And if she is interested in return, which, alas, she never is, she can check up on me. Is this controlling behavior? A big question. One that would have never arisen in the 90s. As Charles Manson famously said 60-odd years ago, total paranoia is total awareness. In the second decade of the 21st century, you can turn that around. Total awareness is total paranoia. Then there is the issue of what is known as mate guarding. This was the subject of a study entitled Control Tactics and Partner Violence in Heterosexual Relationships, authored by Nicola Graham Kevin and John Archer of the School of Psychology, University of Central Lancashire, and published in the journal Evolution and Human Behavior. One can think of mate guarding in terms of possessiveness, which in fact is a form of control, or under the broader rubric of control per se. These researchers found, quote, contrary to some previous evolutionary assumptions, that men and women showed similar degrees of controlling behavior and that this predicted physical aggression to partners in both sexes. They also predicted from evolutionarily based studies that men's and women's control and aggression would vary as a function of female fecundity and mate value relative to peer group and to partner. Here, fecundity is defined as a measure of the number of offspring produced by an individual organism over a given time. According to partners' reports, men and women who had lower mate values relative to peer group and to partners showed more controlling behaviors and, to a lesser extent, more physical violence. There was no support for the prediction that higher mate value partners would be guarded more than lower mate value ones. I find this fascinating. So let's say that a man is partnered with, married to, in a relationship with, a woman who looks like a supermodel, or even more beautiful than that. 
as beautiful as Anita DiFrancesco, host of the Discover Joyous Love podcast. Only that would be impossible. No other woman could possibly be as beautiful as Anita. But back to the man married to the supermodel. Wouldn't one imagine that he would guard her more than if he were partnered with an unattractive woman? But the opposite is the case. Furthermore, fecundity was associated with both men's and women's controlling behaviors, but not with physical aggression. Relationships where the woman was fecund showed higher rates of control. What this translates into is that a woman with many children is likely to guard, control her husband, more than a woman with fewer children, which sort of makes sense. But the same is the case if one switches genders. A husband is more likely to guard, control his wife if she has many children. Well, think about it for a moment, and that that also makes sense. He does not want another man coming in and, if you will, poaching his wife and his children. That would make him feel real, real bad about himself. As often in the study of psychology, I get the feeling that we are looking at human behavior at a very fundamental level. Recall that this paper was a study published in a journal entitled Evolution and Human Behavior. And evolution has to do with the survival and the betterment of the species. Are we in fact programmed to feel and act and behave in this way? One could imagine a similar study being conducted among the higher primates. Or even birds? But perhaps the qualification even has no place here. Lest we wax too theoretical, let us remind ourselves of another broad question that serves as a leitmotif in this episode. Control in relationships. Romantic, a euphemism for sexual, and otherwise, other types of relationships. For example, if Jean's best friend is Cindy, and Cindy all of a sudden starts hanging out with Julia, will Jean want to guard Cindy from becoming too close to Julia? This is regardless of whether Julia likes Jean or not. Some people are, how would you say, possessive of their friends. Onward. Mark B. Borg, Jr., Ph.D., is a clinical community psychologist and psychoanalyst and is the author of the popular psychology books Ear Relationship and Relationship Sanity. Beyond those qualifications, he has the type of helpful author smile I could never hope to aspire to. In the following, he is focusing on the frequently asked question, is being controlling a personality disorder? To which we might add, in and of itself. According to Dr. Borg, when one is hurt by the world, initially by our parents or our caretaking context, it is a natural human reaction to try to control our external environment. Having a controlling personality is not considered, in and of itself, to be a personality disorder. Contemporary psychodynamic theory and practice, as well as almost all psychologists and psychiatrists, use the Dialectical and Statistical Manual, version 5, as the principal authority for psychiatric diagnoses. The DSM-5, 
views personality disorders as being environmental as opposed to purely psychiatric, which is to say biological and physiological disorders. Note here again this distinction between the biological and physical, whether inherited or in a certain way not, whether genetic in a certain way or not, and environmental, the result of things to which the individual has been exposed or experiences the individual has had in their lives. In that sense, a personality disorder is designed defensively to control the environment. And in a social sense, other people are the environment. That quality itself is a central ingredient in a person who may have a controlling personality. Each personality disorder could, under a particular lens, match up with someone's controlling personality. We can take a look at how that need for control might manifest in various major personality disorders. The borderline personality disorder, environmental control. The individual with a borderline personality will control the environment by creating constant disruption, perceiving it you, me, whomever, in one instance as all good and the other as all bad. The borderline disordered person is more than capable of controlling others largely because those others are attempting to decrease the reactions of said borderline. My translation, to keep such a person from flying off the handle, or worse. This can look and be very control freakish. For individuals with other major personality disorders, narcissistic personality disorder, paranoid personality disorder, and obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, having a controlling personality is a factor, a symptom, but not the disorder itself. The personality disorder can be seen as an attempt at controlling the environment and mutatis mutandis at controlling other people. That repeats a little bit of repetition. These personality disorders, such as narcissistic personality disorders, are an attempt at controlling the environment, including other people. Fascinating. The WebMD site covered some of the same material from a different perspective, with this contribution having been reviewed by Dan Brennan, MD. I'm going to share some excerpts of this piece while interjecting my own comments as appropriate. Chances are good that at some point in your life you will have run into controlling people. While everyone wants a measure of control over their own lives, controlling people also want to have a say in other people's lives. At some point, wanting control over minute details of other people's lives can cross the line into abusiveness. Whether dealing with a controlling boss or a romantic partner, it's important to recognize the signs of controlling behavior and learn the best way to deal with it. Many people try to control others out of a sense of anxiety. They may feel that if they aren't in charge, things won't turn out the way they want. On the other hand, for some, it's not a sense of anxiety driving their control issues, but a personality disorder. And here these authors are referring to borderline personality disorder or narcissistic personality disorder. To continue, 
No matter the reason you find yourself on the receiving end of someone's controlling behavior, it can leave you feeling embarrassed, angry, and inferior. My observation here is that controlling people will often attempt to embarrass you when you are with friends or co-workers by acting as if your thoughts, ideas, and desires are inferior to theirs, and that you have willingly placed yourself in a subservient position to them because it is blatantly obvious that they are superior to you. To continue with the article, Recognizing the signs and understanding the cause can help you understand the best way to deal with controlling behavior, the signs of which this article lists as follows. They insist on having things their way. Controlling people often insist that everyone do things their way, even in small issues that are a matter of personal choice. Your partner may insist that you change your clothes if you're wearing something they don't like. They may refuse to back down even after you make it clear that you disagree with them. My comment here is that a controlling partner in a relationship can inhibit you from developing your own style and will communicate to you, one way or another, that they have good taste and you do not. To continue, they refuse to accept blame. No one likes to admit they made a mistake but people who are controlling seem incapable of admitting fault. Even when their actions are clearly the issue, they will find some way to blame you for what went wrong. It may be as petty as accusing you of distracting them when they made a mistake. They need to be the center of attention. If you have a victory, no matter how small, you can count on the controlling person in your life to try to upstage you. They want to be in the limelight, regardless of the circumstances. They are unpredictable. They will keep you uncertain about what they will do next. They may swing between telling you how great you are and sulking because you don't do exactly what they want. The goal is to keep you guessing and focused on them. My comment here is that this is one way that a controlling person, spouse, relationship partner, friend, or otherwise, will wear you down and even turn you into, as a cliché goes, a nervous wreck. Continuing, they lie. Controlling people want to control your reality. Truth is the bedrock of reality. They will try to deny your reality by lying about their behaviors or yours. They may insist that you're the crazy one when you try to contradict them. They want to be in control of finances. If you're married or living with a controlling person, they probably want to handle all of the money. They may claim that they're better at it than you are or that you spend too much. They may want to control your access to money as a way of controlling what you do. And finally, they dictate where you can go. One of the most intrusive ways someone may try to control you is by controlling your movements. They may want to know where you are all the time. Okay, we're back to our social media article again, right? It's so easy nowadays. Whether it's by threats, intimidation, or pouting, they try to isolate you from other truly supportive people in your life. Next, the authors of this piece discuss causes of controlling behavior. There are several underlying drivers of controlling behavior. The most common are anxiety disorders and personality disorders. 
People with anxiety disorders feel a need to control everything around them in order to feel at peace. They may not trust anyone else to handle things the way they will. Controlling behaviors can also be a symptom of several personality disorders such as histrionic personality, borderline personality, and narcissistic personality. These disorders can only be diagnosed by a licensed practitioner. Well, you know, they're pretty darn obvious in many cases. My comment here is that apart from discussing symptoms, diagnoses, and personality disorders as the authors of this article do, controlling individuals in your life are often jealous. They want to control your social access and even social awareness because they are afraid that, feel anxious that, if you were to meet other people, you would realize that you have other options, either in terms of friends, lovers, or relationship partners. The controlling person wants to make you feel inferior because they feel inferior. This, by the way, can also apply to a boss or superior who is insecure and believes, truly or falsely, that you are in competition with them. They will do anything to prevent you from demonstrating your competence out of fear that this will weaken their status in the chain of command. The WebMD piece concludes by suggesting various conversations you might have with a controlling person or persons in your life. I am going to skip these and state my own opinion, which is that controlling people prey on those with poor ego strength, or if you will, who lack self-love. They recognize this immediately and move in for the kill, sometimes and tragically in the literal sense. We have discussed controlling parents a bit earlier, but inhibiting a child from feeling self-love is indeed something that controlling parents do, and it is something which can cause lifelong psychological damage. In a recent article, licensed marriage and family therapist Michelle C. Brutenbrooks, MS, mentioned a few other signs of controlling behavior which we have not yet discussed. Controlling people blame others. They believe that nothing is their fault. They will use projection to shift the blame back to you. They may even accuse you of things they have done themselves so that they can't be blamed. My comment here is that controlling people are often fundamentally unethical in the way they deal with friends, co-workers, lovers, and relationship partners. If you and your partner are having sexual issues, those issues will always be your fault. If they are cheating, it's your fault. If you are in a relationship with a controlling person and they are having problems at work, or fired, or don't get promoted, even that will be your fault, never theirs. To continue with Ms. Brutenbrook's list, controlling people lay guilt trips on you. They may guilt trip you into doing what they want. For example, they may cause you to feel guilty for how you spend your time, such as with other friends instead of with them. Sound familiar? Here are examples of things a controlling relationship partner might say. I was just joking. You are too sensitive. Can't you take a joke? I don't know why you always have to start a fight when everything is fine. Why did you turn and go that way? I told you to go the other way. I have a controlling woman friend who takes backseat driving to an entirely new level. 
She sits in the passenger seat with her eyes on the speedometer, no matter how beautiful the scenery may be. If you go one mile per hour over her personal maximum, she will tell you to slow down, even if another car is tailgating you. She would rather you get rear-ended than go over whatever limit she set, 70 miles per hour, whatever it may be. My comment on everything we have reviewed thus far, and this will not come as a surprise to this podcast's regular listeners, is that people have a way of repeating patterns in their lives. Patterns from their childhood are repeated in work situations, social situations, dating situations, and in relationships. And one of those patterns is either the need to be in control or the tendency to fall under the influence of controlling people. Sigmund Freud called this the Wiederholungswahn, the compulsion to repeat. Playing fancifully with the etymology of Holung, Jacques Lacan suggested that this was the person's need to haul back from the past into the present. If you are with a controlling partner, it is quite likely that this is not the first time. And unless you break the pattern, it may not be the last. We are going to wrap up this episode of Explore Ecstatic Sensuality with a deeper dive into the psychology of fixers, saviors, and white knights. What are their personality characteristics? Why they do what they do? And finally, what sort of individuals invite them into their lives, willingly or because they have been manipulated to do so? According to Dr. Maury Joseph, a psychologist in Washington, D.C., Savior tendencies can involve fantasies of omnipotence. In other words, you believe someone out there is capable of single-handedly making everything better, and that person happens to be you. Here are some other signs that point toward savior tendencies. Vulnerability attracts you. White knighting in relationships involves trying to rescue partners from distress. You may feel particularly drawn to people who've had more than their fair share of troubles in life. This can happen because you've experienced pain and distress yourself. You have a lot of empathy for others who are suffering, so you want to take their pain away from them. But what, your host humbly asks, are you also doing? You are disempowering them from thinking about solutions to their own problems. And in some cases from seeking professional help. Your average white knight does not have a degree and professional experience in family counseling, and sometimes they are imposing solutions for your problems that have not worked for them. You try to change people. Dr. Joseph suggests that many saviors believe in their total power to impact others. You might think you know what's best for those you're trying to help. I would go even farther by stating that fixers, white knights, and saviors have fantasies of omnipotence. And what sorts of individuals develop such fantasies? In a paper published in the journal Semantic Scholar, Elman and Reppin tell us bluntly that fantasies of omnipotence grow out of feelings of helplessness. We are all born helpless, completely dependent on others for nurturance and survival, and we all must face the ultimate annihilation of the self at the end of life. While fantasies of omnipotence help us cope with these painful acts, they may also interfere with our ability to engage reality and deal with life. 
Infantile omnipotence is a subject discussed by psychologists since Sigmund Freud. The sense of omnipotence that arises in the fundamental misapprehension of reality, which is central to the period of primary narcissism, during which the infant hallucinates its original love object, persists into childhood, and is found among prehistoric and preliterate peoples who overestimate the power of wishful thinking and the real-world effects of psychic acts. Infantile omnipotence is also a feature of obsessional pathology, in which it appears as superstitious or magical thinking. For the child, learning the limitations that the reality principle imposes on the pleasure principle is, in effect, a limitation on its sense of omnipotence. However, as Melanie Klein has noted, the child's sense of omnipotence is also tied to that with which it endows its parents and with which it identifies. Reality opposes it in either case. The decline of the omnipotence feeling that is brought about by the impulse to diminish parental perfection, which certainly assists in establishing the limits of his own as well as their power, in turn influences the impairment of authority so that an interaction, a reciprocal support, would exist between the impairment of authority and the weakening of the omnipotence feeling. In her view, the child's experience of omnipotence, as increasing or diminishing, will determine whether he or she will become bold and optimistic, or fearful and pessimistic. However, she added, for the result of development not to be boundless utopianism and fantasy, but genuine optimism, a timely correction must be administered by thought. A compromise thus emerges between the pleasure principle that regulates wishes and fantasies and the area in which the reality principle prevails in the sphere of thoughts and established facts. We can apply Klein's conceptual analysis to examples of white knights, fixers, and saviors. Perhaps these individuals did not feel the impulse to diminish parental perfection, or if they did, failed in achieving that impulse. Valeria Sabater received a master's degree in mental system management from the University of Valencia, specializing in, among other things, neurocreativity and the sixth sense. Here are some of her very straightforward, practical comments on the fixer mentality. People with a fixer mentality have a need to save others and think they know how to solve the world's problems. However, this is due to an intrusive and even selfish personality. These kinds of people are usually insecure, and it's easy for them to do for others what they can't do for themselves. In addition, they think that their assistance creates a moral debt for which they can request payment later. Wow, is my comment here. How many fixers and white knights believe that they are creating a moral debt that the person they have undertaken to fix will owe them something. And that something can be substantial. Sex, for example, or a job, or servitude in one form or another. Back to Valeria Sabater. People with the need to fix others often insist on patching something that isn't broken to begin with. True, they're flooded with goodwill and even noble intentions but they overextend in their eagerness to solve any problem. 
these individuals are determined to do people favors they haven't asked for. In addition, they want to repair aspects in other people they don't need help with. For example, you can see this in people who insist on matchmaking for those who are single. Or it may go even further, as in the ones who tell you to stay away from a certain person because, in their opinion, said person is dangerous. Others may encourage you to, perhaps, be more outgoing, open, and happy. However, they say this when they haven't even bothered to understand how each piece fits into your character. Double wow! This dovetails with our early discussion of manipulative behavior. Let us not forget that fixers are at bottom controlling. They can get their jollies, if you will pardon the technical term, from telling you that you should sleep with someone you have no interest in sleeping with. I have not yet employed the term vicarious pleasure, however, perhaps it is applicable here. Perhaps they want to sleep with that person they are telling you to sleep with. Or, if they are on a matchmaking trip, that could be for a number of reasons. I heard a story about a man almost all women felt to be unattractive, whom a fixer-type woman friend of his tried to set up with a very attractive woman who was, as they'd say, totally out of his league. The matchmaker knew that the unattractive guy would be rejected, but she did it anyway. Then she told him that she had done what she had done because the unattractive guy hadn't been with a woman for many years, and to sleep with this very beautiful woman would make him feel better about himself. But of course the very beautiful woman had no interest in any such thing. So that made the unattractive man feel even worse. Then another attractive woman friend of the same unattractive guy tried to fix him up with an unattractive woman, which further confirmed his awareness of how unattractive he is. Some guys just can't win for losing. Is that the expression? When closely examined, so many throwaway expressions like this don't make any sense. The moral of this story is to keep an eye out for fixers, especially matchmakers' real motives and intentions. When all is said and done, some people, even friends, just want to put you in your place. And this applies to many controlling people. This departs from the ideas of Valeria Santander. However, let us return to what she has to say. What these people, that is to say fixers, are looking for with such a rescuing and restorative attitude is to give meaning to their own lives. Hence, the authors who describe this type of personality profile specify that you can distinguish a white knight by the following characteristics. They tend to be people with a past of abandonment or abuse or those who lost a caregiver. These people are very sensitive and emotionally vulnerable and need to feel useful. They are very critical of themselves but devalue others for a very clear reason, a need to justify helping those who are weak. Finally, these people don't usually rejoice in safe, brave, or risky attitudes and others' accomplishments. They'd rather help those who are insecure and bordering on failure, sadness, and fear. This brings to mind my story about the unattractive guy. 
Here are Valeria Santander's final notes on the White Knight Syndrome. She tells us that you can imagine the kind of life this person has. They're full of pain, disappointment, and frustration that stem from the fact that others don't recognize their noble efforts. Thus, they may become tyrannical and even try to manipulate you. But what you must concentrate on is the injured person who lives inside. The white knight has a fixer mentality that wants to rescue everyone. However, they must first take the steps toward repairing their own open wounds from the past. They're the only ones who can fix the frayed self-esteem that leads them to project their own needs onto others. Thus, be sensitive to this kind of reality. To which my comment would be, is it worth the effort? Unless this person is a close family member or you are in love with them, it is probably better to get on with your own life by facing your own issues. And sometimes even if this person is a family member or you are in love with them, you should face your own issues without their attempts to control you. Then Santander lists what, in her professional opinion, are the types of white knights. White knight syndrome manifests in many ways. It's part of a behavioral spectrum that ranges from normal characteristics to pathological extremes. The highly empathetic white knight. In this case, someone establishes an excessive emotional connection with their partner or with some other person. Here, empathy often becomes a source of extreme fear. Hence the jealousy and desire for control, the anguish at the idea of being betrayed. I would say that what Valeria Santander calls empathy might also be identification. Having an excessive emotional connection with another person can mean that you are excessively identifying with them, seeing them as the same as yourself. So, in a situation like that, fixing the other person is, in a certain way, fixing themselves at the same time. Very dangerous. The idealistic white knight. This defines a figure that seeks people they can rescue and fix. They long to create a perfect someone. Being responsible for that improvement, in turn, enables them to be filled with glory. My comment here is that the idealistic white knight gains ego strength from his or her actions vis-a-vis -vis another person, which ego strength may be lacking in the course of their own lives. And also, by giving themselves ego strength in some cases, aren't they depriving the person they are helping from ego strength, making them feel weaker and dependent? Just a question. The scared white this is the most troublesome of all the types of white knights. A person locked behind severe trauma, abuse, mistreatment. They indeed have a need to help others, but they don't know how to approach others with affection or with genuine caring. Finally, there is the co-balanced white knight. This person is a focused and respectful savior who meets the needs of their environment. They often support, respect others, and always strive to do their best. However, their behavior is compulsive. This last statement deserves repetition. However, their behavior is compulsive.
People afflicted by white knight syndrome need to save themselves. Being a balanced white knight doesn't exempt you from the real problem. This is because you'll continue to kill foreign dragons while holding a sword and a helmet to fight battles that aren't yours to fight. Helping people indeed is indeed noble. It's good to lend a helping hand to the people you love. However, no one deserves to live their life as a mere savior. Of course, there are people who see themselves as saviors in a broader context. History is filled with such people. Politicians <laughs> being a category. But needless to say, many others. And this makes me think of cults, perhaps a topic for another episode. People who, due to aspects of their upbringing, are psychological factors, some of which we have mentioned here, want or even need to be controlled, are vulnerable to individuals who need to exert control. I heard a story about a woman who, as a teenager, had been under the sway of a charismatic evangelical youth leader. A few years later, she met a man on a cross-country flight, and a month later, she was married to this man and in a cult. One could argue that this was not so much a cult as an organization founded by a sincere spiritual leader. However, it nevertheless forced their members to change their lives radically. A final anecdote from me. An acquaintance of mine, whose story was the topic of my episode entitled Love and Pain, serves as an example of another type of controlling person. My acquaintance had, and for all I know may still have, I have not heard from him for a long time, a pattern in relationships. He encouraged women with whom he was infatuated or in love to become dependent on him in various ways. There is a line from Ingmar Bergman's film Vriten, The Right, which he liked to quote, You really need four men. One to support you, one to fuck you, one to entertain you, and one to take care of your soul. For most women, he was the first out of the four, or the third out of the four, or the fourth out of the four, or some combination of these, the supporter and the entertainer, for example, but not the second. He was never the man who filled the woman's sexual needs. He came to realize over time that this was indeed manipulative, controlling behavior on his part because he had manipulated these women to depend on him. To a certain extent, this was also fixer behavior in that he undertook to help the women make progress with their life goals, sometimes when they were essentially at a standstill before he entered their lives. Then what happened? Many of the women seduced him, feeling that this was the only way to keep my acquaintance in their lives. By that time, the women were in love with him by some definition, but it had never been a love based on attraction, or what we have called in several previous episodes, Zazazum. However, after they had seduced my acquaintance, they felt trapped. They did not want him as a lover, but they feared that if they called off the relationship with him, he would no longer support them, entertain them, or take care of their souls. To quote a line from Chantal Ackerman's film La Captive, Chance, desire, fear, and death leave men and women face to face 
and alone. Or to quote a line from Sartre's Being in Nothingness, the ideal of the amorous enterprise is alienated freedom. Each wants the freedom of the other to be alienated. And with that, we bring to an end this episode on controlling people and on those who may control. You may have noticed that I have not undertaken to tell you how to liberate yourself from a controlling person in whatever context that individual has appeared in your life. My objective, instead, has been twofold. One, to assist you in recognizing the various types of controlling people and to let you know what makes them tick. And two, to make any white knights or saviors or fixers out there see themselves for what they are and face up to the damage they may be causing co-workers, friends, and loved ones, or even, to a certain extent, to themselves. If I have a message, it is that controlling people, including fixers, saviors, and white knights, need to lead their own lives. Thank you for joining me. Coming up in future episodes, how important is sex to relationship quality? Flirting. An episode about Freud and Jung, and why I like the former but don't care at all for the latter. A few observations about Tantra. And our most anticipated episode, Orgasm Update. Stay tuned, and don't forget, in all aspects of your lives, to explore ecstatic sensuality.